Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello fellow time travelers, I hope you're well. Uh, a big thank you to everyone who's signed up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It's great to have you all aboard. Sites packed full of history, how it connects with the modern world and our day-to-day lives. Uh, it features a new video every week. There are competitions, there's a whole archive of great videos to catch up on uh, if you've newly joined. I film them all here in my home in Stirling. My wolfhounds are often in the back of the shot. Uh, if you see things that look like shaggy ponies moving in the background, that'll be them. But most importantly, the site helps support the making of this podcast, my love letter to the British Isles. To sign up, simply go to patreon.com and search for Neil Oliver. Right, get ready to travel back in time to the Victorian era. Here comes the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. Open minds, free minds kicked open the door leading into the atom and and everything that that has meant for humankind ever since. In this episode, we're disappearing into an atom and changing the world forever. His father said, without the money, we have to think. And think he did. His brain took him from rural New Zealand and right round the world He built one of the largest and best equipped laboratories ever seen, assembling a superhero squad of brilliant minds. Together they began penetrating the infinitesimal universe of the atom. He's the father of nuclear physics, best known as the man who split the atom. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, you took us to the White Cliffs of Dover, tunnelling beneath the channel with the great Victorian engineers. Where are we this week? We're switching gear this week, Paul, uh, swapping the huge heavy machinery that was capable of tunnelling deep passages beneath English Channel for the precision scientific equipment found in laboratories. From the macro to the micro and the kit that first explored the infinitely complex universe within atoms. 
were at Manchester University's Rutherford Building to meet the superhero physicist Ernest Rutherford. The love letter to the British Isles this week, Paul, comes from a quite unknown corner. It's the Rutherford Building, which is part of Manchester University. And it's named for Ernest Rutherford, who is generally regarded as the father of nuclear physics. Where people know his name, they probably say he's the man who split the atom. It's true, but it's also one of those oversimplifications that us non-scientists <laughs> tend to use about what was actually achieved. But, but he, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it's described as splitting the atom, but as I understand, what, what, what little I understand of the way physicists think... I think they kind of throw their throw their hands up a little bit when, when it's described that way. But he was certainly a pioneer exploring the tiny, tiny, tiny universe of the atom. He was one of the first pioneers to begin to explore that little micro world. And the, the Rutherford building, it was laboratories uh, that had been established at Manchester University. They started building the facility in question in about 1900. Around 1901, he was working there and his name was connected to that place ever after. And it's gone down in history as the Rutherford Building. People don't really, I don't imagine, associate maybe Manchester University with having been at the absolute bleeding edge of technological advance. But it absolutely was. And, and it was a great, great source of pride to Manchester as a city and to Manchester University as an institution, obviously, that for a time there was gathered the most extraordinary team of scientists, physicists, absolutely rewriting and and helping us all to begin to comprehend more about the nature of the texture of reality. Extraordinary. You'd expect that to have happened in Oxford or Cambridge, you know, or London. But the fact is that that work was undertaken in, in, in bespoke labs in, in Manchester and, and a great source of pride it's been ever since. Were the labs built specially for it? Yeah, uh, yeah, they were, they were bespoke, they were built with the intention of, of conducting some groundbreaking research into physics into the study of the building blocks of reality, the building blocks of the universe. And as it turned out, it was Ernest Rutherford. Ernest Rutherford was uh, born in New Zealand. He was a Kiwi. But his parents, James and Martha Rutherford, were from Perth in Scotland, actually. And they emigrated out to New Zealand. James, his father, said somewhere his plans, his ambitions were to, quote, raise a little flax and a lot of children. Um, and, and they did indeed raise a lot of children. I'm not sure how much. They did grow flax. Flax is one of those, um, like, jute, big leaves, big leaf plant, and you can treat the leaves down into fibre, and you can make things from the fibre. A cloth, you can make a, a fabric, which is super useful. So there's money to be made. It was a bit of a boom industry. Flax grows. It's an, an indigenous plant in, in that part of the world. Martha was a school teacher and uh, she looked after the education of the children. They had a dozen kids. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, they certainly did raise a lot of children, and Ernest was the fourth. He was the fourth child born to them, so he was in the in the elder half of the brood, and it gives the impression of a of a very warm and loving home. They lived first of all at a place called Brightwater, near Nelson. Nelson's a principal city on South Island in New Zealand, and that, that was where the family established itself. And they did struggle financially. And so James was in the habit of saying to the children, we haven't the money, so we've got to think. <laughs> you know, where we have want, where we lack, whatever it is that we lack, we're going to have to think our way to a solution. And that was fostered amongst the children. And so it's a good attitude, I suppose you would say. It's not all about money. They were loved. They were looked after. Their, their mother was a school teacher, so she was able to see to their education. They grew flax. They were provided for, but sometimes they, they got into times of financial shortage and it was James Rutherford's attitude, certainly, and probably Martha's as well, that they think themselves through it. You know, don't wallow in it, don't panic, think. And I suppose you might say that's at the foundations, maybe of someone who thinks scientifically. What's the nature of the problem? What are we trying to get to? What do we understand? How can we advance our position? And so it was. They moved from Nelson um, and the family home latterly was at Pungarehu on the Taranaki coast of the North Island and there's now a, a museum to Rutherford on that location and Rutherford's face is on the New Zealand $100 bill which is the highest value banknote amongst the Kiwis so it's a fitting tribute to him you know, that, that note of highest value has on it the face of Ernest Rutherford I know you've spent a lot of time in Australia and New Zealand, Neil, but have you... I've been there. I've been to his home. What was it like? Well, it's... it's um, the museum is in, is, in a, is in a lighthouse, which wasn't the family home, but the family home was in Pongarehu, and it's a... It's a I suppose you describe it as a, a rural area, rural, coastal. Very attractive. I, I've spent a lot of time in, in New Zealand, and, and, and I happen to love the, the landscapes of the North and the South Island. It's very much rural farming people but quite lovely and it's got that wildness about it the oceanic climate you know the weather rolls in there's there's quite often a lot of dampness in the air certainly conducive to the growth of flax you know it's a lovely part of the world and very early on the family realized that Ernest was smart at the very least that he had academic leanings he's one of those kids that experimented when he was 10 he built a cannon <laughs> Seriously, he built a cannon. Uh, and, and, and I don't know whether his mother and father knew what he was up to, but he, he detonated a charge inside and, and it exploded. It just blew itself to smithereens. But he, uh, Ernest was, was undamaged. And I, I don't think they discouraged him. I mean, maybe they encouraged him to be a, a little bit more safety conscious, but they, they certainly didn't get in the way of his inquiring mind. And he won a scholarship to a private school. He was then financed through Canterbury College in Christchurch, and by 1895, he was a research student in the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. So he'd moved to Britain by then? Yeah, lis listeners may well have heard of the Cavendish Labs. And so he was well established by that point as a scientist and studying things radioactive, you would say. 
at one end of the spectrum you've got the, I, mean, I'm a, I say as a non-scientist, at, at one end of the spectrum you've got the lighter elements like helium and hydrogen, and they tend to pull energy towards them. But at the other end, where you've got the heavier elements like gold, but also things like uranium, they're shedding their energy. And it's that, it's that shedding that is the radioactivity, that's what we detect as radioactivity. Five years, he's professor of physics at the McGill University in Montreal, so he did time out in Canada. You know, I think it's in the nature of these these academic scientists, you know, that they're applying for and taking up positions in those locations that they think will further the research. And so they tend to be prepared to travel because they're trying to be where the best of the best are around them. Do we know about his ambition and drive and about his personal character? Yeah, I think he, he, remind, he reminds me in, in many ways of James Clerk Maxwell, a, a Scottish physicist, who, as well as being incredibly clever, was also good company by all accounts, affable and easy. You know, but quite often, you know, you read about, say, for example, Isaac Newton, who was of incomparable genius, but he, he seems to have been quite quite awkward in many ways. It's a shame. We tend to, not only do we expect our geniuses to, you know, fix the world for us, but we, we want them to have a witty line in repartee <laughs> and be good company at the dinner table. And, you know, it, just, it doesn't always work out that way. And, and Newton, I think some, some people have suggested that Newton might well have been, say, maybe on the autistic spectrum. Not to the extent that he would be disabled by it, you know, functioning in society, but awkward in that kind of Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory way. A slightly difficult person to, to be around. But somebody like James Clerk Maxwell was famously ordinary. He went home and took part in the harvest in the autumn every year. and He was known to be just easy company. He kept friends that he'd had from his school days, his early childhood onwards. He didn't shed anyone. He, he kept people and he wrote letters and he, he maintained his correspondence and he kept in touch with people and... He didn't lord over people because he was incredibly clever. He was quite self-deprecating and open to laugh. And Ernest Rutherford, what I know of him, he suggests that he's, he was of that sort. Not only incredibly intelligent and making incredible advances in understanding, but he was nice to be around. <laughs> so he's like the, you know, someone properly to envy. Uh, by 1907, he was back in England. That's when he's at Manchester University in the unit that, that subsequently would bear his name. And he, he had gathered around him by 1907 an extraordinary team of people, generally thought of as one of the finest and most influential teams of scientists ever assembled anywhere. Hans Geiger was there. Now, you've heard of the Geiger counter that measures radioactivity. He was part of that team. Ludwig Wittgenstein, who's a philosopher, he was part of that team. Lawrence Bragg, uh, who would win the Nobel Prize in 1915 for the study of X-ray crystallography. And let's just leave that there. <laughs> X, X-ray crystallography. Uh, but Lawrence Bragg was part of the team. And Niles Bohr, that's another name that anyone who's remotely interested in, in the study of the universe would, would have heard of Niles Bohr. And he was there. So it's all legends in the field of physics. A 
I wonder what it was like in the canteen at lunchtime. Impossible to keep up with, I would have thought. <laughs> so Rutherford was, was um, he was leading, he was leading the study of physics at Manchester Uni for eight years. As I said earlier, the, the facility was opened, it was built from about 1900, it was opened in about 1901. The physical laboratories were on Oxford Road, purpose-built for studying natural science. And at the time, in that first decade of the 20th century, that building in Manchester University was one of the largest and best equipped of its kind anywhere in the world. It's a great, great source of pride and a, a wise investment by, by all concerned. And it was there, it was there and then that Rutherford and the rest of them thought up the experiments uh, that in 1911, and that's the crucial date in terms of the story, 1911, they would reveal for the first time something of the nature of the atom. Now, the atom is a word we almost take for granted. We know it means something infinitesimally small. It's associated in everyone's mind with the atom bomb. But it was the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, who just based on nothing, I mean, no observation, they didn't have the means by which to go looking for the atom, but they theorised that there must be a, a smallest, a fundamental building block. It's like if you, if, you, if you want to know what's inside an apple, you cut it in half with a sharp knife. Now you've got two halves. And then you could take the other half, you could take one of the halves and cut it in half again. And you, you can keep on going. And then you take the seed and you cut seed in half. And then you cut half the seed and you keep on going. But of course, eventually you reach a point where the thing you're trying to cut is as small or smaller than the edge of your blade. And so the, the, the Greeks thought about that. They thought that they just theorised that, you know, eventually if we keep cutting, quartering, eighthing, sixteenthing, thirty-twoing, that eventually you'll end up with something that's too small to cut. An atom, the A part of atom means not or un. And tom, Thomas is another Greek word and it means, well, cuttable. So atom, you might say, means that which cannot be cut. It'd be like if you tried to, I don't know, bring a sword blade down on a, on a steel ball bearing. It would just, it'll just ping away. And so they, in their mind's eye, they, they conceived of the atom as a tiny little globe, too small to cut. Atomos, uncuttable. But of course, that was all just done by thinking. They had no means by which they could go about, you know, trying to test their hypothesis. They just assumed, thought their way to an answer that said that there had to be a fundamental infinitesimal grain of matter from which everything else was somehow composed. So it was that kind of ancient thinking that Rutherford and his team inherited. But they set about coming up with experiments to see if they could get a, a, a physical sense of what an atom might be, what it might be composed of. So this is all very difficult stuff, unless you know people out there are come from a scientific background. But I'm imagining that most, like myself and like you, we don't really, you know, I've read around a lot of this stuff and I find it very difficult because I lack the maths. Maths is the language that nature speaks. I'm prepared to believe that, but I don't. I don't speak that language, so I, I am sort of forever on the outside of proper understanding. But I do know that one of the experiments was to fire a stream of particles, which is to say, 
tiny little, tiny little packets of energy or, or matter, tiny little objects in a stream, a, a, a sheet of gold foil. Right, so you imagine, as it were, a, the foil wrapped in a quality street chocolate. <laughs> you take that off and you smooth out the gold. Well, you know, but, in, but actual gold foil, actual gold, very, very thin. And they, they sort of fired a stream of particles at it. Now, their understanding of at that point of what an atom must be was that it'd be like a little Christmas pudding. If you imagine all the, the mass of the pudding and then there's, the, there's a few raisins scattered through it. And the raisins are like the hard bit. They're like, the, they're like whatever gives the atom substance. Or at least that was, the, that was the theoretical understanding of the nature of an atom up until Rutherford and his team. And so when they fired the stream of particles at the gold foil, they thought the, the particles would just pass through the foil. That they would like go through the dough of the Christmas puddings and go out the other side. But actually, actually what happened was their particles bounced straight back at them. So some of the particles went through as they expected, but some bounced back. Yeah, and Rutherford was stunned. He said it'd be as though they had fired a shell from a, you know, from a gunboat at a sheet of tissue paper and have it bounce back. It was, it was unthinkable. It was just, it, what? How can this possibly be? They, they, you know, they were just absolutely stunned. And so it meant that they, they, they understood for the first time that rather than being, like, evenly distributed th- through the atom, like the raisins in a pudding, that all of the hard bit of an atom, everything that gave it matter, was clustered at the centre. There's no getting away from it. It's very difficult stuff for the likes of us even to visualise. But it, it, they, they understood, they, they looked at what had happened, they had fired particles at foil and had them bounce back, so they imagined that the, the particles must be hitting the nucleus and, and bouncing away. A bit like, you know, if you hold two, the two positive ends of a magnet together, you try and bring them together and they, they resist it, they push against it. It's, it's a bit like that. So, like, if you threw a positive end of a magnet at another positive, it would just boing. So something like that seemed to be happening. In short, Rutherford and the team, they discovered what has come down to us as the nuclear atom. Nuclear, as in the nucleus, as in this hard, as in this hard centre. And so what they had done was, apart from anything else, was that while the Greeks had thought that the atom was the smallest thing, they understood all of a sudden that it wasn't, that the atom was itself made of smaller. And I'm always minded, there's an old um, rhyme by Augustus uh, de Morgan in 1872, he wrote, big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And little fleas have lesser fleas, and so ad infinitum. Yeah. You know, you know, no matter how small you go, <laughs> the small is made of smaller, and then the smaller is made of smaller, and that smaller is made of smaller. And it was it was Ernest Rutherford's experiments that you know, amongst others, that that showed that up. 
an atom, right? This is one of those kind of meaningless uh, water cooler facts that you can take away. An atom, as we understand them, as, as we understand it now, is so small that it would take five million of them side by side to go across a full stop on a printed page. Right, so if you a, a period, a full stop at the end of a sentence on a newspaper page or a or page of a book, you need five million atoms side by side like pearls on a string to go from one side of that dot to the other. But courtesy of Rutherford, we know that at the centre of the atom is something that's a thousand times smaller again, which is to say the nucleus. <laughs> right? I try and try and wrap your head around that. The centre of the atom, of which you need five million to go from one side of a full stop to the other, well, at the centre of each of those atoms is something that's a thousand times smaller than the atom is itself, and around that little tiny particle of something spinning almost like little planets around a sun, around the nucleus are spinning little satellites, if you like that are called electrons. You know, so you've got the atom, which is in itself incomprehensibly, incomprehensibly tiny, but it is in itself made up of things that are infinitely smaller again. Ah, that are spinning around it. That are spinning, so at the centre there's a nucleus, and around it, depending on what the element is, there's different numbers of of electrons uh, that are spinning around it. I'm a big fan, although he mystifies me as much as Rutherford, of an American physicist called Nick Herbert. Because of the language that he uses, it, it helps me just to sort of graze with my fingertips the outside edge of what these incredibly big-brained people might mean. He said humankind exists in a King Midas-like state, doomed never to experience the true texture of reality because everything we touch turns to matter. You know the way King Midas, everything he touched turned to gold? You know, including, say, if he wanted to touch his daughter's hand, he would never know what her skin felt like or her flesh because in the moment he came in contact with her, she turned to gold. Well, Nick Herbert said, we cannot, as human beings ever, experience the texture of reality because everything we touch feels like matter. And matter as we experience it is not necessarily reality. That's how we experience the phenomena of reality. But that's not necessarily what reality actually is. And I, and I find that way that he, that the way in which Nick Herbert expressed that very helpful. Uh, so uh, Rutherford, there he is. He's, um, he's regarded as the father of nuclear physics. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1908 during the First World War. He came up with a means of detecting enemy submarines using sonar. So he wasn't just a one-trick pony. His mind was out there considering all sorts. And then in 1917, what he did, which was of immortal significance, was he found a way to bombard the nuclei of nitrogen atoms. So having identified that at the centre of an atom there was something solid, which was the, the nucleus, in another experiment he took nitrogen atoms and he bombarded them with radioactive particles and the bombardment caused those atoms to split
compromised the bonds holding them together. And, and you know, if, like if you, I don't know, if you drop a, a china cup, you get a noise, you get a ksh, and also the pieces fly in different directions because there's that which has been holding the, the cup together. The bonds are broken and there's things fly apart and there's, a, there's also a noise. That's the release of energy. Energy that's been within the cup is released and that release takes more than one form. And so by bombarding the nuclei of nitrogen atoms, he caused them to shatter. And that is the splitting of the atom that, that people kind of summarise achievement. In 1919, he was back in Cambridge, kept on moving. He wasn't always in any one place. So he had moved on from Manchester. He was in Cambridge University. He was professor of physics uh, and he directed the Cavendish Laboratory which, in which he had previously done time. In 1931, he was made a life peer. He took on the title Baron Rutherford of Nelson in honour of his... That's where he was born, remember, back in New Zealand. So he took on the title Baron Rutherford of Nelson. If you were to go now to the, the former physics laboratories, there's a blue plaque, you know, one of those familiar blue plaques that mark the passing of significant people. It's just between two windows on the ground floor beside the entrance, and it, it offers up just his names and his dates. And over the front door, there's a, a triangular pediment, which has nothing to do with him. It was part of the architecture of the building, but... It carries the university motto, which is Ardus ad solum, which means striving towards the sun, which, coincidentally or not, seems to be apt in relation to somebody studying radioactivity and energy and the nature of physics. Tragically, he died as a, still a young man. The death was covered, amongst other places, but quite well done in, in the New York Times in 1937. He died of a strangulated hernia a condition that ought not to have been life-threatening but in whatever way it did, it got him but the New York Times 1937 said and I quote it is given to but few men to achieve immortality, still less to achieve Olympian rank during their own lifetime Lord Rutherford achieved both in a generation that witnessed one of the greatest revolutions in the entire history of science he was universally acknowledged as the leading explorer of the vast infinitely complex universe within the atom, a universe that he was first to penetrate. It's worth saying that Rutherford always knew what he had done by splitting the atom. By splitting the atom, there's an, an outstanding release of energy, which can be used, well, any way you want to use energy. It can be used to power our homes, it can be used to give us heat and light and all the rest, but it can also be used destructively in the form of an atomic bomb. And Rutherford understood right from the get-go that the path that he had laid could be used either for good or ill, or for both. And of course, that is what happened. It was used for both. But he had opened the door on, on the nuclear future. He hoped, because he was, I suppose, scientists, maybe scientists are optimists. Maybe there's a tendency amongst them to 
look on the bright side. And he hoped that those that followed in his train wouldn't follow the path of destructive potential, but they would do something constructive with it. But there was no denying that he'd, he'd opened the door on, on nuclear power. And of course, ahead in the future were the experiments with nuclear fission that would lead all the way to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the bombs that were dropped on Japan at the end of World War II. When he died, prematurely there, he was buried in Westminster Abbey, uh, which is a great honour in itself. His remains were interred, his ashes were interred close by uh, the grave of Isaac Newton, William Thompson, Lord Kelvin. And it's strange to say, time has moved on like a river, leaving the Rutherford building as, as a bit of a backwater. It's, it's used now for the administration of the university. It's not a place of scientific research at all. It's a place of records and, and admin. But in there, Rutherford and his team, well, depends how you look at it, they either slid open or kicked open the door leading into the atom and everything that that has meant for humankind ever since. Manchester at the turn of the century must have been quite an extraordinary place. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we tend to make, I, I suppose, just narrow-minded assumptions that the great advances happen in the places, that, you know, like I say, like Cambridge and Oxford, and a lot of them do. And, but nonetheless, Manchester University was, because of that team, I mean, Niles Bohr, you know, Geiger and the rest of them, Wittgenstein, I mean, the, the thinking power that was gathered together in a relatively small space all at once was incredible and the world would be a different place, perhaps, or probably because minds feed one another. Maybe any one of them operating in isolation wouldn't have taken the great steps that they did, but because they had one another to bounce off, a bit like atoms, you know, a bit like electrons bouncing off one another, they created energy, and they were able to make the advances that they did. It just so happened that that, that coming together happened in Manchester University. It must have been exciting, mustn't it? Well, yeah, because the, the, the advances there, you know, you're talking there about, you know, the time of quantum theory, Einstein, you know, relativity. The understanding of the universe hasn't hasn't really come on a great deal since the since those concepts. The concepts that, that Rutherford and others working in other places at that time, you know, it really have defined our understanding of the universe ever since. It's their shoulders that everyone today is standing upon to try and look ahead, but Max Planck and the rest that walked us into the, the quantum realm, that was all happening then, early part of the 20th century, and our understanding of the fabric and the texture of the reality of the universe has not really changed since then. Those were the last big steps. brilliant how you said they invested in these incredible laboratories and it paid off. Yeah, and they let them get on with it. I mean, I don't suppose it was huge amounts of money, but they, they were just given the freedom maybe more than anything else. You know, they were given the facilities, they were given they were given what was required and the freedom and the time and they put together the experiments that brought forth that understanding. And that's what universities should be all about, you know. Back there at the turn of the 20th century, in places like the Cavendish Labs, like what we know as the Rutherford Building, but that physics laboratory in Manchester, that was open minds, free minds, 
allowing themselves to go in whatever direction they could imagine. And it made all the difference. River Tweed and centuries of history flow through this town. A long, tortured and often bloody story. Celtic Britons first staked a claim here, founded before any of the modern nation-states existed. Anglo-Saxons followed them, making it part of their Northumbrian fiefdom. It became a powerful Scottish port, an English borough, changing hands again and again between the two nations, pooled like a bloody trinket between warring parents. A town with an atmosphere all of its own. Many people here now feel neither Scottish nor English. A place apart. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's love letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. <laughs>